Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 2. You can open your Bibles there. Actually, going to back up a little bit into chapter 1 for the sake of context. Since it's been a while since we've been in Mark together, we'll begin reading in verse 40 of Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 40. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. When he had come back to Capernaum, Several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get him, get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As a result of the world in which we live being fallen and affected by sin, opposition for the believer is inevitable. As a result of the world in which we live in being affected by sin, conflict for the believer, for those who trust in Jesus, is unavoidable. How do we approach opposition? How do we deal with conflict? What do we do in the midst of opposition? How should we act in the midst of conflict? As we 
consider the life of Christ in the Gospel of Mark, he is our guide, our hope, our consideration. So to answer the question, how do we approach, how do we deal with, what do we do, how do we act in the midst of opposition and conflict, it's consider Christ. That is our hope, to follow him, to believe the gospel and to keep on believing it, placing our faith in him moment by moment, day after day, recognizing that our faith in him is not primarily for a smoother pathway through this life, but for the sake of having our sins forgiven. Faith is, as the title of the sermon says, for forgiveness. Faith accomplishes much more than that. But it is primarily this, at its foundation, faith in Christ results in forgiveness of our sins. We come to the passage that we're looking at today, which is verses 1 through 12 of Mark chapter 2, we notice that Christ is busy doing the work that he came to do. He attempted, it appears at the end of chapter 1, to hide out out of the public's limelight. But even then, people were coming out to him. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, he came back to Capernaum, which was his home base in the early days of his ministry. And word began to spread that he was back. And we find him doing that which he came to do, which is preaching the word. What we are looking at today is the first of five stories, back to back to back. We'll look at them in pair, the final four in pairs, I think, over the next couple of weeks. But this first story, what we find in all five of them, that they are linked together by opposition. There's opposition to Jesus and to the ministry of Jesus in each of these stories. Conflict, from the human perspective, begins this early in Christ's ministry. Already. We're in the second chapter of Mark. We're early in the days of him having begun his ministry. Now, there's been conflict already, but it's conflict from the devil previously that we saw in chapter 1. But as far as conflict... On a temporal level, from the human perspective, it begins here in chapter 2. And we will find it increasing in intensity over the next three years of Jesus' life, culminating in his death on the cross. Even here in these stories in chapters 2 and 3, where we see the conflict beginning, even here we can see it increasing in intensity. It moves from reasoning in their hearts in chapter 6 to complaining about him to his disciples in verse 16 to bold, being boldly protested directly to Jesus in verse 24 and then conspiring against him as to how they might destroy him. Chapter 3, verse 6. Listen to these verses. Chapter 2, verse 7, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Their reasoning and their minds and their hearts. And then verse 16, why is Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? They're complaining about him. Or verse 18, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? They're not complaining to the disciples anymore. They've gone straight to Jesus with their complaints. 
Verse 24 of chapter 2. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're still complaining to Jesus. Complaining at him, protesting him and his ministry and his disciples. Chapter 3, verse 2. They were watching him, watching Jesus, to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And then verse 6, immediately they began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Oppression is is inevitable for us as followers of Jesus because it was inevitable for Jesus. If we are going to follow him, we we are going to face opposition in this life. Conflict is unavoidable. And just like for, in the life of Christ, opposition was inevitable, conflict was unavoidable, and the cross was coming. It would, it would, the, the intensity would continue to increase until the cross. So I have three themes that I want to consider with you this morning from this text. I don't have any points. Right? I have a pointless sermon. It won't be the first one. (laughs) If you're lucky, it'll be the last one. But there are three themes that I think are worth us looking at this morning. Friendship, faith, and forgiveness. Friendship, faith, and forgiveness. I mentioned already there in verse 1, as this story begins, Mark records... Jesus escaped the crowds for several days, but now he has returned to Capernaum. He cannot avoid attracting people. He's a magnet. Lots of people. And many of the people that showed up are genuinely interested people, no doubt. Some are just rubberneckers who are curiously interested. Their curiosity is killing them. And then there are the scribes. These straight-laced rabbis, experts, especially if you ask them in the law, who are envious of Christ's authority and are disturbed by the large crowds. So the crowds are coming in, following Jesus wherever he goes, and crowds attract more crowds. We understand that. You've seen it before. There might be something that's not all that interesting, but if lots of people flock there, everybody goes. And that's some of what's happening here. There are genuinely interested people, but there's also just curious people. And then there are the scribes that are there with their own ulterior motives. Now, all of those folks are important to the story, but they're not the main person that showed up that day that Mark is giving emphasis to. There's a paralyzed man that came to see Jesus that day, but he was too late. Too late to get in the door, but not too late for a miracle or two. With all of the crowds coming around, Jesus takes full advantage of the opportunity, verse 2 tells us, by speaking the word to them. The reason they were there didn't matter to him, not at this point. They needed to hear the truth. We need to hear the truth. The genuinely interested, 
the insanely curious, the disturbed envious, they all have the same need. We all have the same need. Their need is our need as well. The word of God, the gospel of truth, the scriptures. It is what we need. It brings life. The first theme to consider, friendship. I find it interesting as we consider the passage, nothing is even mentioned about healings taking place on this occasion. Mark tells us what Jesus was doing. He was speaking the word to them. So they didn't hear. They had heard, obviously, that Jesus had healed in Capernaum before he went out into the wilderness, out of the public's eye. But now he's back, and there's, there's no word. We don't even know why this paralytic wasn't brought to Jesus before when he was intentionally healing people. Nothing is mentioned about healings taking place on this occasion, yet these five men show up anyway. Four men hauling their paralyzed friend to see Jesus. They were determined to find relief for their friend. But when they arrived at the house where Jesus was, there was an impenetrable thicket of people. There's no way in. It would be hard enough for a single person to weave in, much less for four people carrying a stretcher, basically, with a paralyzed man on it. But these four men, four friends, along with the paralytic, were noticeably courageous and noteworthily resourceful. They didn't just give up. Though paralyzed, this man has what many never do in this life, true friends. Consider the friendship that these men expressed to the paralyzed man. Willing to go through the trouble to try to find where Jesus is. And then willing to go through the trouble to make sure that they get him an appointment with Jesus. They knew, they were convinced Jesus was his only hope. Now consider for a moment their commitment as friends to the paralyzed man. And what they were willing to do to put him and his needs before Jesus. In some measure, they were unaware of all the needs that the man had. They knew he couldn't walk, and they brought him to Jesus as a result. Now, let's think about it from this vantage point. Jesus is not here in town today. He's not here in town anywhere on the planet today. Not in a physical way. But we have access to him. Access has been granted to us in a way that it wasn't available to these five individuals who are intent on getting a hearing with him on this day. Prayer. Intercession is far easier than dropping a stretcher through the roof. God hasn't demanded or required that we go through any of that trouble. Not hauling the paralytic, to the house or finding a way to get up on the house 
or tearing away the roof in order that we might drop him down in front of Jesus. Intercession is far easier than dropping a stretcher through the roof. Are we taking advantage of that? Are we proving to be friends as faithful as these four by carrying needy brothers and sisters to the throne room of God and laying them, as it were, at the feet of Jesus? He's their only hope. He's our only hope. Or what about your own needs? Are you laying them there before Jesus? Again, even for the needs in your own life, you don't have to trek across town to a certain place. You don't have to be disappointed that there's not enough room for you to gather around the throne. There's always room. There's more room for you to come and to close in and to come near God in prayer. Are you laying your own needs before him? Are you laying the needs of your friends and family before him? If you were one of the four making the trip that day with their paralyzed friend, would you have knocked quietly and then just returned home? Ah, must be over. No one's here. Or would you have noticed the crowd and turned around in dejected disappointment. Ah, maybe we can catch him another day. Or would you have responded in the way that these friends did? And are you responding in the way that these friends did? Are you bringing others to Jesus? Literally, bringing them to his word, bringing his word to them, and bringing them before him in prayer. Friendship. Not everyone is a friend. We see that portrayed here in this passage as well. Verses 6 through 8. Some of the scribes that were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts. These professional legal experts who have been trained to sniff out error. And they are confident that they will find it. They are self-impressed with their ability to Know what God's Word says and to sniff out any error. And they have apparently found an issue with the words of Jesus to the paralytic. So much so that they accuse him of blasphemy. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Blasphemy. These men are not present by happenstance. They didn't just wander in. They are there to track down the rumors that they've been hearing about this man, Christ, Jesus, the Lord. And it is their job, at least in their mind, to decide what is acceptable and unacceptable to God. And so they've pulled up a chair on the front row, as it were, of Jesus teaching and preaching in what is most likely, again, Peter's wife's house, Peter's mother-in-law's house, or Peter's house, probably all of them, in Capernaum, with the determination to figure out what is wrong about him. What's he doing wrong? We've got to catch him. There's conflict and opposition. It's really remarkable to note the irony of their hearts and minds being kind of 
pulled open and exposed by Jesus. In verse 8, Jesus immediately aware in his spirit that they were reasoning this way. And yet they still question and doubt his authority. You can see the stubbornness and the reluctance to listen and obey and believe in the human heart. Jesus says right before them exactly what they're thinking. He doesn't even ask them if they're thinking that. He asks them why they're thinking that. Because because he knows what they're thinking. Their inner deliberations and their doubt was not a secret from him. Him who knows all things. And he didn't just know all things about the scribes on this day. He knows all things about you. And all things about me. Instead of a loving friendship, they were indifferent, contentious, and hostile. And Jesus exposes them for that. But in contrast, the four friends that brought the man who needed to see Jesus, what evidence of kindness and grace in their life as they did what was necessary to find help for their friend. Second theme to bring out, faith. Friendship and now faith. Look at verse 4, being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Imagine the moment. Jesus is teaching inside a home, not a large home, but probably bigger than most of the homes there in Capernaum. And then there's an interruption, a noise from above, a scratching sound, stuff shuffling around, crumbs from the ceiling begin to fall. I like to imagine the scribes sitting there frustrated about the dust on their clothes. The ceiling's in that day would have been made with timber cross beams and then branches and thistles laid across them. Some of them would have mud smeared out or clay tiles even laid down. So it wouldn't have been a a clean, easy process to remove the roof. It would have been easier than removing a roof in our day, but it wouldn't have been clean at all. Eventually, after tearing enough of the roof away, daylight begins to peer through a few cracks Then the original skylight is revealed. (laughs) And four faces gazing into the crowd below. Probably a lot of faces gazing up and more than likely could only see the silhouettes of four men. And then the lowering of their friend on the pallet, the homemade stretcher, lowered in before Jesus. They removed the roof Above him, it says here in Mark 2. Literally, they unroofed the roof. (laughs) They took what was roof and made it not roof in order that they could get their friend before Jesus. And they say nothing. One amazing aspect of this story is the friends, nothing is recorded about what they say. Not just in Mark, but in any of the other gospel accounts. They don't say anything. There's no explanation of the situation. 
There's not even a plea for help. Their words are not noted. If we're honest, their words aren't even needed. Is it not obvious what the needs are when you have a paralyzed man laying on a homemade stretcher? Their speech may not have been superb, but it could have been incredibly eloquent. They may not have had the best arguments of why Jesus should heal him, but they may have been exceptional in logic and reason. We don't know. What we do know is that their faith was sufficient. They believed. They believed what they had heard about this man, Jesus. And they were willing to do whatever it takes, to, whatever it took to bring their friend to this man. So what will Jesus say? The roof has been opened up. The man on the stretcher has been lowered. What will he say in the midst of his teaching? How will he respond? He could scold them for interrupting. I mean, the audacity of interrupting the Son of God who is preaching. He could, I suppose, expect them to repair the house. At least the homeowner probably expected that. Or he could have asked them to clean up the mess. Surely some of the debris fell on him. They were able to drop him right in front of Jesus. The debris would have, debris would have gotten on him as well. None of those things. Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Or literally, in the original, forgiven are your sins. Son, a term of endearment. But all the emphasis is on the first word in the original language. Forgiven. Forgiveness. This is what I'm pronouncing. The faith that is displayed in these five men. We assume the fifth had faith. But in actuality, the text only says that the four had faith. The friends were the ones with faith here, which is remarkable to witness. Because of their faith, Jesus says, forgiven are your sins. Now, you might can imagine the four friends looking down from up above when they hear Jesus say this. I mean, for us, when we read it, the story is very familiar to most of us. We understand that Jesus came to save sinners. The story wasn't familiar to them, right? They're living the story. They knew that Jesus had healed. They brought a paralytic man to Jesus. I imagine that their first thought was, what? What did he say? We're here for healing. Who said anything about forgiving? I mean, our friend can't walk, and you're accusing him of being a sinner. Who mentioned sin being an issue? Our friend is paralyzed. But this physician, Jesus, the great physician, is making clear, abundantly clear, that he regards spiritual blessings far above material ones. And he's also making abundantly clear that he has the right and the power to heal the soul as well as the body. Jesus, seeing their faith, verse 5, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. The faith of this man's friends. Do you have friends like this? Do you have faith like this in order that your friends might benefit in a way that this paralyzed man did? Their faith was persistent. 
Their faith was creative. Their faith was sacrificial. It's a wonderful picture of faith in action. They didn't just sit home, gathered around their friend, convincing themselves of how strong their faith was. Faith is not mere belief in our minds. It is belief, but it results in a life lived. It results in action being taken. Now let's consider a moment, for a moment, from the vantage point of the paralyzed man. Again, us reading this story, we we are so distant from it in so many different ways. But in reading it, you have to imagine that in the coming days, he found himself very grateful for his ailment, for his paralysis. Without it, he probably never meets Jesus. Without it, he likely dies in his sin. For this man, paralysis was the beginning of eternal life. Now, this reality has been true for so many others. Wisdom is learned through affliction. Mercies are obtained through bereavements. Losses are proven to be real gains. Sicknesses lead so many to the great physician of souls. When we see the ultimate benefit, the ultimate outcome in this man's life, the misery that he existed in before, being paralyzed in our day is difficult. Living in the days that we're talking about was far more difficult than today. To be paralyzed in that day without medical treatment, without supplies, without stretchers, beds like we have, would have been far more difficult. And he probably didn't spend a lot of days grateful for his paralysis. But it's helpful for us to see in the providence of God that he has and is working all things in every one of our lives for the end goal that we find forgiveness. And whether there are physical ailments or not, that we all have them to some degree, But we will one day, if we find forgiveness, we will one day be free from those ailments as well. For this man, for him to consider the paralysis to be a blessing, for his affliction to be a blessing, for the helplessness to be considered a blessing, for the impotence that he experienced, for it to be a blessing, completely unable and powerless to do anything on his own, The only reason it proves to be a blessing in his life is because he has true friends. So again, these themes that I've separated out also end up overlapping and dovetailing to some degree. He had true friends who had true faith. But not everyone has faith. We're told what the friends, pardon, we're not told what the friends thought. We aren't told that they said anything at all. But we're told exactly what the scribes were thinking, what they were saying in their hearts about the situation that was playing out right in front of them. And you remember what they were saying. Blasphemy. 
Redemptive authority belongs to God and God alone. Which is a very true statement. Their assessment that God alone can forgive sin was exactly accurate. Their assessment that Jesus was not God could not have been more off base. So instead of faith, they only criticized. They are the reason that Jesus would later say, and you, Capernaum, remember that's where they are, you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. What a striking statement from Jesus. What is worse than Sodom-like sin? Sitting above the word of God, making your own rule of law, refusing to recognize the authority of Jesus, being self-righteous like these scribes, according to Jesus, finds you worse off and more unlikely of responding to the gospel of grace than being a sodomite. Friendship, faith, and forgiveness. Not everyone is a friend, but there are true friends. Not everyone has faith, but some have exemplary faith. And it results in forgiveness. Again, the stated question that the scribes had is not a bad one. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They knew that to be true. The remission of sin is, in fact, a divine prerogative. And by them asking this question in this way at this time of this man, they prove that it is possible to have a right theological position about God without having a right relationship with him. May God help us from finding ourselves in such a state. They prove that it's possible to have a right theological position with regard to God without having a right relationship with him. None but God can forgive sins. That is true. No angel, no man, no church, no minister can alleviate a guilty conscience and grant peace with God. Only God himself can do that. So Jesus answers their inner inquiry with a question of his own. Which is easier? Verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Which is easier, to forgive sin or to heal paralysis? Anyone can say your sins are forgiven. How can it be proven? So the question really hits on a couple of different fronts. Because Jesus asked, which is easier to say? Well, you can say either one. Which is easier to do? Are not both impossible for man to do? Man can say either of them, but both are impossible to do. But so Jesus continues, so that you may know and believe. He knew they had no answer for his question. So that you may Know and believe that I do have the authority of God, or literally, so that you will know that I am God, standing before you in flesh. I will heal the paralysis, and this man will walk home before your eyes. I will forgive him 
from his sins and free him from his paralysis. So which is easier? Neither is more difficult than the other for the omnipotent God. He has the power to heal body and soul, and he's making that abundantly clear here in this one story. And consider what we see being revealed here with Jesus dealing with the paralytic man is true for every child of God. Forgiveness never stands alone. God's forgiveness is a pardon plus plan. He doesn't just pardon us of our sin. He doesn't just alleviate the unrighteousness. He doesn't just forgive our unrighteousness. But we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We're given access to the throne room of God. We are adopted into his family. We are made like him increasingly day by day. One day we're made like him because we see him as he is. And we're separated from sin altogether, both within and without. Our sin is forgiven and we are embraced in an adopting love that lasts forever and ever. Jesus, in the midst of talking to these scribes, turns mid-statement and addresses the paralytic. So he's, he's talking to the scribes in verse 9, which is easier, to say the, to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he turns to the paralytic in mid-statement. I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Threefold command. He, it's like he gives up the argument. Ah, they're not listening. I'll just show them. Get up. Pick up your pallet. Go home. The crowd was too much to get in, but evidently after what's happened, they were willing to move by as he picked up his pallet, rolled it up, and walked home. A threefold command. Get up, pick up, go home. And he obeyed. Unlike the leper previously, who was healed and was told to go and not say anything, he didn't do that. It's part of the reason that the crowd's here. This man came to Christ paralyzed and guilty, and he left freed, free from his paralysis and free from his guilt. Forgiveness is real, and it never stands alone. But not everyone is forgiven. Verse 12, the second half. They were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The crowd was amazed. The crowd was astonished. But at least some of them were unaltered, even with what they've just witnessed. We know that to be true based on Jesus' later words, telling the city of Capernaum as a whole, they were headed to hell rather than to heaven. Why, after watching what has taken place, the faith of these men being commended, the forgiveness being offered to the paralytic, the healing of the paralytic, the difficulty of the scribes to understand and comprehend, why would their response of the crowd not be, what about us? What about our sin? Pronounce us forgiven as well. Free us from the guilt. The spiritually paralyzed in the crowd were far worse off 
than the man who could not walk. There were hindrances to them believing. Maybe the size of the crowd, maybe the skeptics that were sitting on the front row. But as we see the hindrances to their faith playing out in this passage, there are hindrances in our lives as well. Think about that for a moment. What hinders you? What hinders you from placing your faith in Jesus? What hinders you from receiving full forgiveness? What hinders you from exercising true friendship and having real faith? As a result of our sin and God's salvation of sinners, opposition in this world is inevitable and conflict is unavoidable. And at this moment in Jesus' life, the cross was coming. And at this moment in our lives, it has come. Which leaves the question for us, have you come to Christ? Have you exercised faith by coming to Him who knew no sin, who loves you with an everlasting love, and turned from your sin and trusted in Him? If you are not in Christ this morning, you are more paralyzed by your guilt than you know. Come and find freedom from that in Christ Take your guilt to the cross and leave it there. As we come to the table in just a few moments, it's an opportunity for us to recognize and remember what God has done for us in Christ. We are observing the elements. We are partaking of the body and the blood of Christ as we partake of the elements representing the brokenness of his body and the shedding of his blood for the remission of our sins. As we come to the table, if you're in Christ, there is a warm welcome for you to come. And for you to come and take a look up at God and adore him for who he is. But not only that, take a look back and remember that Christ came to save you. But also take a look forward in anticipation of him coming again. This world is not our home. He will return. But take a look outward as well in proclamation to the world that Christ came and he lived and he died for sinners like us. But also take a look in, in self-examination. Are you right with God and right with his people? And take a look around in consideration. We are coming as one body, united to Christ, and as a result of that, united to one another. If you have repented of your sins and you are trusting wholeheartedly in Christ alone for your salvation, you have a meaningful relationship with a local church, please come and take. Portray the gospel in picture here as we take of the bread and drink of the cup. If you're not in Christ this morning, this, the table is not for you, but Christ is ever for you. While others are coming to the table, run to Christ in your hearts, repent of your sin and trust in him 
find salvation. I mentioned earlier that there's plenty of room for us all to come in for prayer. There's room at the cross for every single one of us. The blood is sufficient even for you. Come to Christ this morning and find forgiveness. I'm going to pray, and after I do, we will come and partake. Coming up the middle aisles, just come to an empty tray when you see it, and returning around the outside aisles. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord and our God, we again thank you for your word. We praise you that it is true. We pray that you would cause the reality of the truth to sink down deep within our souls, so deep that it would affect every aspect of who we are, how we think, what we say, how we say it, how we live, the choices that we make. God, we thank you for what you have provided for us in Christ, that you have not only forgiven us as your children, but you've given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You've made us sons and daughters, and you've promised to never leave us or forsake us. You've given us your spirit to live in us as individuals and among us as your people. We pray, God, that you would work mightily in us now as we seek to worship you through observing the shed blood of Christ and his broken body and the salvation that is ours because he is ours. God, we thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.